What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I'd been on my own for a while and getting kind of lonely and bored. And that's when I started shadowing. Shadowing? Shadowing, following. I started to follow people. Who? That's a clip from the opening scene of 1999's Following, the indie thriller that marked the directing debut of Christopher Nolan. In anticipation of the director's latest, Tenet, we start a career retrospective of Nolan's work this week with a discussion of his first feature. Plus, the second film in our Betty Davis marathon, 1938's Jezebel. All that and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Thankfully, Josh, they've been making movies for a hundred plus years, so we are going to keep cranking out these shows, whether we've got new releases to talk about or not. Yeah, that's that's the plan, and I'm grateful for it. It's been nice to hear from listeners saying, "Hey, thank you for continuing to do shows, even though things are probably a little crazy for you guys, as they are for everyone." But honestly, um, I feel like I need to keep doing these shows. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's been good, just personally. I mean, I've got you know day job stuff to distract me. I've got more family time than I know what to do with, but I still kind of need the show. I need to be able yeah. to do this show. Yeah. I don't mind the structure actually of having these films right. to both watch and to talk about with you. And of course, we'll say again to anyone out there listening who is a hospital worker or on the front lines of this whole crisis, we do wish you our best and we are thinking about you during this crazy time. Thank you for everything that you are doing. This week, we'll go back not quite a century to 1938 for the second movie in our Betty Davis marathon, 1938's Jezebel. And no, we didn't know that we had selected a film about a yellow fever epidemic when we made this selection. Yeah, that one took me completely by surprise. (laughs) Here I am thinking going back to 38 for a little distance, a a little break from things, and that got rough. Yeah, it's a little bleak and definitely a little bit too close to home right now, but I'm looking forward to that conversation. We will also announce the finalists of Film Spotting Madness, the best of the 2010s. Josh, it all comes down to this. We are going to have a winner soon. Very soon. It's almost all over, at least for this year. First, though, before he went to the beaches of World War II, the vastness of deep space, or the dark recesses of DC Comics, Christopher Nolan let his camera loose on the streets of London for following. Your eyes um, drift across a crowd of people, and they slowly stop and fix on one person, and all of a sudden that person isn't part of the crowd anymore. They become an individual, just like that. just became irresistible. You followed women. I followed anybody. I just wanted to see where they went, what they did. It was supposed to just be completely random. You would never follow the same person twice. That was the most important rule. That was the one that I broke first. That's when the trouble started. That's from the trailer for Christopher Nolan's Following. His 70-minute black-and-white debut got a very limited release in early 1999. It's about an unemployed writer who becomes obsessed with following strangers through the streets of London. That ends up causing all sorts of problems. The movie was made for reportedly only $6,000, made about $40,000 in its theatrical release. Now, appropriately, Adam, the first shot in following, Nolan's debut is of a wooden box full of mm-hmm. clues. 
the writer, played by Jeremy Theobald, he's begun to tag along with a house burglar at this point, played by Alex Haw, and he's rifling through a woman's apartment when they both come across this box. Inside is some cash, but mostly there are trinkets, mementos, if you will, some photos, a seahorse figurine, or it might even be a a dried-up actual seahorse. There's a candy necklace in there, I believe. The burglar describes this as an unconscious collection. And I think that phrase is also a helpful way of thinking about the Puzzle Box movies that Nolan would go on to make. These dreamy stories disconnected from conventional linearity, they definitely can feel like unconscious collections. Watching films like Memento, The Prestige, Inception, even I would say his World War II drama, Dunkirk, with its gradual constriction of time and space, it can be like opening a box and trying to figure out how the various items inside coalesce into a surprisingly coherent narrative. Now, Following is a smaller film than any of those shot in black and white on 16 millimeter with a tiny cast. The only other notable role is that of a model who the writer meets, played by Lucy Russell. Nolan wrote the screenplay for Following. He served as the cinematographer and edited alongside Gareth Heal. So this is very much a creation of his own making. We're seeing it for the first time, Adam, as part of our Nolan overview, our chronological exploration of each of his films in anticipation of his new one, Tenet, which is currently set for July. Scene Following, for the first time, Adam, what puzzle pieces to the picture of Nolan as a filmmaker clicked into place for you? What elements fit neatly into the pattern set by his later films? And maybe tell me if there were a few pieces that felt out of place to you. Well, first, it occurs to me how deeply flawed our oeuvre review is that we're going in chronological order. Why didn't we just throw these all up in the air and pick randomly the movie we should start with? Well, you know, we're particular type of guys, Adam. We like a plan and a process <laughs> yes. in place. So I don't think that would sit well with either of us to just throw titles in the air. Yeah, we're going to stick with a structure here and go in order. But it really is so fun to look back at the debut film from a director who you feel like you know fairly well. I mean, other than this movie, we have seen all of his other films, some of them multiple times. And you see that they were almost fully formed. And Of course, yes, the very first bullet point I have in my notes is that emphasis on personal objects that does open the film. Right away, I felt like I was watching a Christopher Nolan movie, and then we watch these reckless or dangerous characters who are driven by obsession, and they're all kind of on the fringes, right? They're creating their own moral universe, and they have their own truths and these rules that they establish that are separate from society's laws. And this main character who is just called the young man is someone who is looking for meaning like so many of his characters do this whole idea that maybe there's some kind of larger purpose to his life that he has to discover. And of course, the fact that one of the main characters is named Cobb connects us right back to Inception. And I even thought of the young man as an investigator of sorts like Leonard in Memento. I thought a lot about the prestige in this movie as well. Characters with all sorts of different agendas. And I haven't done the math on this, Josh, but how consistently throughout his work does Nolan use a voiceover or some kind of construct to help propel the story and provide psychological insight? We get that here, right, in the form of the conversation he's having, we discover pretty early on with a police officer or a detective. But with or without that in his films, there's always this sense of characters trying to process their identities along with us as viewers, their past and their present, the future, 
They're all blurred together. And of course, that's where this fascination with time and playing with chronology comes in. And I suppose I'd say to close out my list of similarities or the ways it connects back to Nolan's work overall, there is a precision to this movie, even if it's really gritty and you've got that 16 millimeter style, the black and white cinematography. You can tell as well that a lot of it was stolen on the street, which doesn't really match any of his other films at all. But I think for me, the only thing that's maybe out of place is that with Nolan, you do get this moment of revelation. And I'll digress for a second and say one of the things I'm most fascinated to talk about as we get through this overview is where those Batman movies fit into this. There are ways, mm. of course, that those films feel precisely like a Christopher Nolan movie, but I wonder if a lot of the real Nolan heads out there, the Nolan scholars and aficionados have already dissected this and decided that those movies are almost separate from the other films in his catalog. But whether a crime is solved or a trick is revealed or some connection is made between the characters and, of course, by the audience, there is this sense of, as you put it, the puzzle being finished and an image being revealed. But I think what makes Nolan so special for me is that once that puzzle is complete, that's where the real mystery and the pleasure of unraveling it comes into play. And you get to really start considering the larger philosophical ramifications. Memento, for example, which... I'm not going to get into here because it's coming. It's obviously coming next in this series. There's narrative closure that is satisfying, but even more satisfying are the existential doors that are opened up and the questions that it provokes. And if following does feel like starter Nolan, besides the production value, and of course it is, it was his first film. I think it's for me that the revelation and its cleverness starts to feel like the objective. The revelation closes mm. the narrative and not only really doesn't open any doors to explore it actually kind of shuts them down before you can step through yeah i think that's fair so the the meaning behind the revelation uh that so many of his films leave you with and leave you pondering and mm -hmm. thinking about and wanting to honestly revisit those films again not so much you know part of it is to see the pieces being put into place ahead of time now that you know where they're going but it's also because most of them do leave you with those deeper questions to think about and i think it's fair to say following doesn't necessarily do that i think some of it is maybe in the philosophy that cobb the burglar offers and we can spend some time mm -hmm. on that i found him actually more interesting than the writer um, who is we can also talk about maybe something of a nolan or at least a, a filmmaker a creative type stand-in yeah um but the reason i think you're on point in saying that the cleverness is a means to its own end a bit here is because there are actually two revelations right so i we won't spoil them because you know we want people to play along and a lot of folks haven't seen following yet um, but we will say that one deception is revealed and then after about 10 minutes or so we get another deception mm -hmm. and sometimes when films do that um you do get a sense that that's the bottom line for the movie that it is less interested in the ideas behind those deceptions than in pulling them off um and i think i felt here maybe there was one gotcha plot twist too many in following and it left me feeling exactly with what you're describing um but there is to this Cobb character uh one of the other really interesting things he says and I think these are two pretty good performances for, you know, relatively um, 
inexperienced actors. I'm not sure exactly how much they'd done before this, but certainly working with a first-time filmmaker. I think both of these characters were compelling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they created individual guys going after their same goals and how they come together in this and, and also come up against each other. But Cobb in particular says at one point to uh, the writer who goes, goes by Bill um, about robbing. He's not just doing it for, for money, but he's doing it really to mess with people's heads. And what he says is you take it away to show them what they had. And so this gets at, you know, the philosophical element to this, that he is in a way trying to, he thinks at least he is trying to help these people or at least jostle them out of their um, own everyday lives and reconsider um, what they do have and what that says about them, what Mm -hmm. it says about how they're living their life and what they value. See? Envelope. Photos of the porn cards, notes. Sort of unconscious collection. A display. What do you mean display? Well, display. Each thing tells something very intimate about the people. We're very privileged to see it. It's very rare. Hey, hey, what the... the hell do you do that for? It's like a diary. They hide it. But actually, they want someone to see it. That's what I do. You can see on my display, flip sides of the same coin. This way, they know that someone's seen it. That's what it's all about. Interrupting someone's life, making them see all the things that they took for granted. Like when they go back and buy all this stuff from the shelves of the insurance money, they'll have to think for the first time in a long time why they wanted all this stuff, what it's for. You take it away, you show them what they had. And so the Cobb was just a really interesting character, especially when you hold him in line appropriately with some of the things going on in Inception um, and even Memento, uh, you know, how we define who we are, how mm-hmm. we create our self-identity. Um, and so I do think there is some existential um, exploration going on in that character and in how he challenges Bill. Mm-hmm. But I do also agree with you that it does kind of get left on the side as motivations become clearer. And honestly, by the end of the film, Cobb's motivations become um, just less interesting, more basic, yeah. more more elemental in a way. Yeah, I'm with you on Cobb completely in some of those ruminations that he has and the way he, I suppose, justifies almost what he does as a burglar. And I've jotted down some of those lines and you had maybe his most provocative one there. But when he talks about these objects and the way everybody has a box like that and they hide it, but it really is like a diary. And he suggests that actually everyone wants you to see it. And mm. that's the function he's serving for them. He is almost helping them in some way. And Bill has a line where he says to the detective that this whole shadowing thing, the following only really became a problem when it wasn't random anymore. It was when he started selecting people that things went wrong. And that in and of itself is kind of provocative. And that whole idea, you're absolutely right, of him taking something away from them and showing them, making them appreciate maybe what they had, not in the objects themselves, but making them appreciate the stories behind the objects, making them understand the relationships behind the objects and what really is ultimately important to them. And Josh, you mentioned how he's sort of a stand-in bill is for an artistic character, obviously as an aspiring writer. I loved the potential that I thought was here that this was all an artistic construct, that these characters and scenarios and these even more conventional nods to kind of noir thrillers were something that he was completely making up in his head. And so I was really intrigued to see where this movie is going to go in terms of how it 
furthered those connections between a burglar and a storyteller. I just couldn't wait to walk around in those spaces a little bit more. And then I think what we're saying is it ends up revealing itself to be masquerading as a mind bender. That element's there a little yeah. bit, but it's mostly masquerading as a mind bender that really does kind of want to be a more conventional noir. Yeah, it it surprises you with where it goes to some degree, but it's also way more prosaic than than maybe I expected, given those ideas you're talking about. And I think, you know, it's both a it's a good thing that these two characters are symbols in a way for different things that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But this is one thing I'm going to be interested in in looking closely at as we revisit a lot of his films is how much they register as real people because for me they were both very compelling as ideas and the performances um captured the the essence of these two guys as representing different types of people or types of thinking but i never really even in the relationship that bill has um with the model played by russell um you know you you don't become really invested in them as two human beings. Not at all. And so I do wonder, I want to, I think that is something that Nolan has, um, has improved upon as I think about his movies, but I want to see the process in each of his films as we go on, because very clearly here, um, we have these two characters, these two main characters registering more for me, at least as ideas than as people. Yeah, they definitely do feel more like archetypes than flesh and blood characters. I suppose we do have to directly talk about the choice here to tell the story in a nonlinear fashion and whether or not that does ultimately make the movie better or perhaps makes the movie worse or maybe doesn't have any impact on what we think it would be like if it was told in a chronological fashion. My immediate response to the movie was that that choice doesn't seem as purposeful or as successful overall as it will of course, with his next movie, Memento, a movie where if you watched it in a different order, obviously you would be having not just a different experience, it would be a completely different film. And I'm not surprised, I guess, that I saw on the Criterion Collection Blu-ray for following that there is a chronological cut of the film. And I'm intrigued enough by it. Yeah, I'm intrigued enough by it in this question to watch that at some point. Right now, I'm not sure it does fulfill any kind of higher function or provoke any more of those existential questions the way Memento does. It absolutely does add to this kind of dreamlike state that we're in as Mm -hmm. viewers and Bill is as a character. There is in that inability to pin down a character to a certain time or space. It does unmoor you in a way that I think adds to that sense of a character searching for something, always on some kind of quest for meaning. It does work in that way, but in terms of a stylistic choice, is it maybe a little bit too artful for its own good? Well, I think it goes back to that comment you made at the start about throwing the puzzle pieces in the air, throwing these titles in the air. That's essentially what he's doing here, right? It's, it sounds like you could have very well done a chronological version of this story because he did, um, and it would have worked just fine. But it it also tricks us in a different way. So I do think it's part of the trickery. It's part of the cleverness. It's part of the puzzle piece structure that he wants to play with. Um, Yeah. Immediately. I can't think of a deep thematic reason behind it, or even an existential philosophical reason behind it. There might be one, but it struck me as, you know, just a way he's interested in telling stories. And so in this early effort, that was going to be how he did it. And I think that's, you know, even if it is just cleverness, I think it is a way to mark him at this point as 
a talent to watch mm-hmm. as someone with an interesting um, way of working, at least. And I think you can also see it in um, some of the other aesthetic touches. This black and white cinematography—it's—it's it's very, it's strikingly noirish, especially for so low budget and just you know seemingly using a lot of available lighting, but getting um, striking imagery from it and allowing rooms, allowing you to see exactly what you need to see in a dark room in an enticing way. That's all right here at the start. I think the editing, and here's maybe where the um, you know the nonlinear nature comes in. The editing is is pretty brilliant, pretty expertly conceived in terms of uh, always allowing us to pretty much know once we get our bearings after the first few time changes, we can pretty much tell where we are. There's mm-hmm. some costume design work that does this, um, but also the editing is really smooth in how it brings us from one time frame to another. And there's just one shot. You mentioned you know the crowds um, on the street and so forth. There's a very early shot when Bill is talking about this habit he's begun to follow following strangers. Um, and uh, he, he says something about the strategy he employs about following them to, you know, keep his distance mm-hmm. so they don't see him. Um, and then, and then all of a sudden he references, I think it's something about when you're looking at a group of strangers and someone just jumps out at you yeah. and we get a cut to this medium shot of, and I believe it's Cobb right before we're introduced to it him, is. just turning around quickly, looking right back at the camera. And so there's, there's just little choices like that where you can really see um, the craftsmanship that we know is to come in some of those later films. Absolutely. I was going to jump in with that very example, actually, because I rewatched the opening 15 minutes or so of this movie today, and I did love that little moment, which maybe is the most ostentatious cut in the entire film if you take out the nonlinear aspects of the storytelling. But the way he says, basically, as you're looking in a crowd, you just lock on to someone or someone comes into focus. And in that moment, yeah, that's it. he does lock in on him. He does come into focus. And then just as quickly, we're out of it. We jump back to the conversation he's having with the detective. So that is a really nice touch. And I'll mention one other choice that we'll go back to what we were saying in terms of these characters feeling overall a bit more like archetypes than anything. There are still nice little details like... The moment where they go back after their first encounter, Cobb and Bill, and they go to his flat or what he's using as a flat. It's like an abandoned office space. And they've stopped clearly at some kind of store and bought some beer. And Bill isn't looking at Cobb as Cobb is walking towards him with the beer. And we just see Cobb quickly shake the beer up and down. Uh huh. He, he shakes it and then yeah. hands it to him as if he hasn't done anything. And... 30 seconds or so of conversation goes by and the scene is punctuated then by Bill deciding to pop open the tab and take the swig of the beer. And of course, it fizzes all over him and spills out. He has no idea why in that moment. And it's not even a case where Cobb wants him to know that he did it. It's not about him pulling a prank on him and him being aware of it. It's in fact because he's not aware of it. It's just that's how mischievous he really is. Right. That he just plays these types of games. That's it. That's what he's all about. And we see it even in those moments when he isn't actually teaching Bill anything at all. We're still learning a lot about his character. Yeah. And there's a he makes a good comment, too, which is a jab um, at Bill when Bill at this point, I think is robbing his own apartment, but not telling Cobb it's his apartment, Mm -hmm. if that sounds right. I don't think we know. Cobb may already know it's his apartment and is just playing along. I think that's that's the implication. Yeah, He makes this comment about an old-fashioned typewriter, (laughs) and he says, no, this guy's not a real writer. He'd have a word processor. (laughs) He wants to be a writer. 
because he has a typewriter. So that's, yeah, there is. And I think that goes back to what I was saying about the performances are good. I don't think the characters are fully envisioned on the page, maybe Mm -hmm. in the way we're talking about, but the performances are very good and and keep you guessing and keep you um, hooked to these smaller interactions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably just a couple detail things we should, we should know, but of course, um, the Batman sticker on the door of Bill's apartment, right? You know, you just, you'd love to know, I'm sure there's a story back then. Maybe it's just, you know, that Nolan's always been a Batman fan. I don't know, but that was kind of cool to see. And then one of the sets, one of the locations is a basement bar where they return to a number of times and something about the doors to the kitchen of that bar where they look like the doors might be leather, but they have these porthole like circles going all the way from the top to the bottom that just screamed to me, Christopher Nolan production design. I yeah. like I immediately felt like I was in inception again. I don't know if there are doors like that in inception or windows that I'm remembering, but that was a little moment. And even some of the other production design details, lamps and things like that. It's this, I haven't put my finger yet on exactly what the aesthetic is, but it's a very Tony, um, sophisticated, but also quite noirish, yeah. um, feel to some of these locations that he's putting us in. Even at this low budget level, when you were talking about the doors, my head actually went to the Overlook Hotel and that bar Mm. in The Shining. And of course, we see a picture of Jack Torrance from The Shining in Bill's apartment as well. So maybe should we get to the most important part of this, the ranking of Christopher Nolan's films? Yeah, let's do it. I think this would be fun to do at the beginning of this uh, oeuvre view. So I have previously posted on Letterboxd a Christopher Nolan ranking. Have you done it before or is this a new list for you? No, I usually don't do these until I have actually seen every film from a filmmaker. So after I saw following, I I put up um, one that this is where I'm at now, basically. And I know things are going to change after we've seen all these films. So, so it's just kind of a starting place for me. Yeah. Well, that's how I feel about mine as well. And I suppose we could just run through them real quick. We can look at them in order and then discuss the major differences because there are certainly some major differences. My current Christopher Nolan ranking is Memento at number one, Interstellar at two, Inception at three, Prestige four, Dunkirk five. And then I've got all the Batman movies, six through eight, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, Batman Begins, and finally, Insomnia. So before I slot in following, I will say that in terms of star ratings, just to give you some context here, I'm three and a half to five stars on the first seven of those films. And then I've got Batman Begins as a three star movie. Insomnia is the only Nolan film that I am mixed on and I am really eager to revisit it and see how I take to it this time. But right now that's in last place because it's the only movie I guess I can say I didn't really like following for me, definitely at least a three-star movie. And I think for now I'm going to slot it in at eight just ahead of Batman begins and insomnia. Okay. So the bottom line is we're both huge fans because to your star rating comment, yes, the ones that I have at the top here, the first, um, oh man, the first six I have, I would say are on a four star system, which I use on my site, three and a half to four stars. So love so many of these movies, but you're right. We also have different titles at the top right now. Dunkirk, um, is number one for me, followed by inception. That's one, uh, I, I can see dropping maybe on a revisit. I, I'm curious about that. Number three, I have The Prestige. And then four is The Dark Knight. 
Five is Memento. And this is where there's maybe another tier starting here for me. Memento and Batman Begins are probably their own tier. Following right now, I'm putting at seven, followed by Insomnia, The Dark Knight Rises at nine. And yeah, here's our big difference big is difference. Interstellar <laughs> at number 10, which is, you know, one that I know in film spotting lore, I, I, I'm the evil Interstellar hater. But I would say, as you as you described Insomnia, that I mixed on it. Um, and the one just the only one that I have real issues with, I'm pretty sure that is one that's going to um, rise. I can almost say that with confidence. But it's interesting also putting this on social media. Um, you know, a fair number of people did have it ranked in the lower tier for him as well. Um, so it's one that for some reason, uh, some people have it number one and others have them have it lower at the bottom. So that, that's the one I'm probably most eager to revisit. Yeah, so that discrepancy, two on my list, 10 on your list, obviously the biggest difference. As I glance at it, we both do have Memento and Dunkirk in our top fives, but we're reversed on it. I have Memento at one and Dunkirk at the tail end of that. You have it with Dunkirk at one and Memento at five. We do both think The Dark Knight, not a surprise, is the best of the three Batman films, though I've got Dark Knight slightly lower at six. You have it at four. We both do have Prestige and Inception in the top five as well. I really like that we both have the prestige because I feel like that's one that uh, does not get enough attention in his filmography. That is uh, when that came out, you know, I just thought that was by far his best. So can't wait to see that one. And I do like I do wonder if in this revisit, um, I like your idea of putting all the Batman films right in a row and just kind of ranking those because they probably are going to strike me as such being of such a piece together. And we're, we're talking about, I don't know if we've settled on it, but we're talking about doing, this would break the chronological plan a little bit, but maybe doing a show where we just talk about all three films in one show. So um, we'll see, maybe I will end up in my re-ranking, which will happen doing something similar to what you did, putting those three in a pack. Yeah, for me, they do feel like separate Nolan. As I was thinking about my list, and again, I formed this list on Letterboxd maybe three or four years ago, and I've added to it as more films have been released. I guess when I think about what really draws me to Nolan's work, as much as I do like The Dark Knight, and I like The Dark Knight Rises too, I'm not as drawn to those films and as eager to revisit them and continue exploring them, honestly, as I am Memento and Interstellar and Inception and The Prestige, which for me, that's the film I most can't wait to see for the first time since reviewing it here on the show 12 or 13 years ago. Yeah. And I think uh, for me, as I said, Interstellar and also maybe honestly Insomnia, um, just because it's one that, uh, you know, I feel most people have lower down, feel it's a bit of a, a straightforward genre exercise. I'm wondering if that one might have some surprises for us on a revisit. We will update these rankings as we go. And hopefully you might be playing along as well. You can see following on demand, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Prime, YouTube, and over at the Criterion channel. And I mentioned the Blu-ray disc, Josh. I do want to give a quick shout out to a listener, a film spotting family member on Patreon named Hallie Mitchell, who actually sent to our P.O. box a copy of following on Blu-ray, the Criterion Collection edition. She sent a nice handwritten note along with it and just said that there is something I love about hard copies and the production design of the physical Blu-ray packaging slash art slash booklet is top-notch, as is the case with all of Criterion's products. Hallie says she thinks following only gets better on rewatches. It's a completely different experience. So just very thoughtful of Hallie. We appreciate that. And of course, I'll let you borrow it, Josh. Yeah, I was going to say, where's my copy? All right, fair enough. <laughs> if you do see 
following and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. While Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk and Inception have both been bounced out of this year's Film Spotting Madness, the best of the 2010s edition, we'll reveal the finalists in our annual tournament next, then review the next movie in our Betty Davis Marathon, 1938's Jezebel. Stay with us. I keep having the same old dreams You and me in dystopian dreams I keep having the same old dreams You and me in dystopian dreams Wake up in a panic with my face in a cold sweat Some parts I can't remember Some parts I can't forget If there's a way out of this haven't found it yet, no I keep having the same old dreams You and me in dystopian dreams I keep having the same old dreams I didn't see you at school today I went to the doctor What's wrong? Girl problems. Don't you ever just wish you were a dude? All the time. This is the most magical sound you will ever hear. That was from the trailer for the new film, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. It's written and directed by Eliza Hittman and had its debut back in January, which feels like six years ago at the Sundance Film Festival. It was a nominee for the Grand Jury Prize, also the recipient of a special jury prize for neorealism. Was originally scheduled for a March theatrical release, but as things have drastically changed, it has just been released for digital rental. We should note. We are alongside each other in spirit only. This is true. Not actually sharing a space. But yes, this is a film, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. We were looking forward to talking about, really excited that we're going to get that chance. It's that at home on demand that you're seeing with some of these films now because of the current crisis. And I think it's that 1999 premium price point. But if you want to see the film and be part of our discussion Next week here on the show, you can check it out. As of this weekend, April 3rd, it's available. Hitman was on our Golden Brick Radar a couple of years ago with Beach Rats. A few listeners wrote in recommending it. We weren't able to get around to it at the time, but this film has been getting a lot of buzz and we're eager to talk about it. So you can see it on Prime, Google Play, Apple TV. If you're curious for more information, you can go to focusfeatures.com slash never dash rarely dash sometimes dash always and it gives you all the platforms we will also link to that in our show notes over at filmspotting.net every two weeks on our sister podcast the next picture show you will find a new movie pairing a recent release and a classic tasha robinson scott tobias keith phipps and genevieve kosky are your hosts and josh it's part two of soderbergh's contagion and 1950s panic in the streets directed by Ilya kazan a film i need to see Yeah, a blind spot for me as well. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday at midnight. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And there's more information at nextpictureshow.net. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? 
madness. This is Sparta! It all comes down to this. Film spotting madness time. 64 films from the 2010s. Only one can reign supreme. And this week, it is time for the finals. We are going to crown a winner. We'll see who the runner-up is, as well as the third-place consolation prize. Voting for the finals kicked off earlier this week. You can vote now over at filmspotting.net slash madness. Polls close on Monday the 6th, Monday, April 6th at 11 a.m. But we're going to tell you how we got to this point, starting with Bong Joon-ho's Best Picture winning Parasite, our overall 11 seed, facing off against Jordan Peele's Get Out, the 10 seed in the final four. Let's hear from listener Daryl Patterson. I don't think there's ever been a film spotting madness poll that has had me staring at the computer screen as long as this one. For a second, I actually found myself getting a tad emotional. I love both films dearly. Both films have serious social relevancy, but I ultimately decided upon Get Out because as an African-American male, it's a film that has touched me on a more personal level than Parasite. I will not be upset if Parasite wins this round, but my heart and soul ultimately belongs to Get Out. Aaron Teachman in L.A. writes, it may seem trivial, but the straw that tipped my scales to Parasite was actually that while Get Out is great and Us is extremely good, I think Jordan Peele's best work is ahead of him. Bong Joon-ho has been wrestling with these themes in film for much of the decade, and all of his stuff has been good to very good, but nothing is complete a marriage of concept, execution, and style as Parasite. Get Out was an amazing start for Peele, but Parasite is a culmination for Bong Joon-ho, so he gets my vote. Does that culmination argument hold any water for you, Josh? It does, actually. It, it makes me think of, you know, the way I think about Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life being this masterpiece that you can see he had been working towards mm-hmm. his whole career up to that point. So even though I might have personally voted for Get Out, I, I like that argument in favor of Parasite. Well, you were definitely in the minority on this one. A pretty easy victory for Parasite, 70% to 30%. Yeah, how about that? Winning everything. I mean, gets the Oscar. Yep. Might, might now get to be Film Spotty Madness champion. Gets a shot at least. Should we create a statue that we send to Bong? Yes, I think so. Can you? We would get a great video. Thank you, I'm sure. Yeah, he doesn't have enough hardware on his mantelpiece at all. David Fincher's The Social Network was our number four seed, and it went up against a very formidable opponent. Our number one overall seed, George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. We heard from Jonathan Anderson. So not only is my bracket shot, but now I have to choose between Fury Road and the social network. I thought this was supposed to all be in good fun. Runs off crying. (laughs) Ethan McCarthy from Highwood, Illinois, says, I stared at this one for several minutes. Both are uncannily germane to our cultural moment. And what's maybe more important, both are a blast to watch. In the end, I had to close my eyes and go with my gut. For all its excellence, Social Network doesn't bust as many movie paradigms or make your heart pound as hard, nor did I mutter holy shit nearly as many times when I first saw it. The holy shitometer decides it. Mad Max Fury Road. Josh, does the holy shitometer also hold water with you? Well, I, I will no longer be using star ratings on my website. You don't need it. It's just I'm going to have a holy shitometer embedded. <laughs> the margin for this one a little bit closer, but Josh, not that close. How did it come out? 62 to 38% in favor of Fury Road. So Fury Road with 62% of the vote, that was actually its lowest percentage overall in any of the rounds. Its average margin of victory in the tournament was 41%. So 
a pretty easy time. Not the perilous journey that the characters have in Fury Road. This time, Charlize Theron, Tom Hardy, and co. had it pretty easy going on to the championship. Parasite, even easier. 68 was its lowest percentage, and that was against the Tree of Life in the Elite Eight. Its average margin of victory, 55%. Yeah. And so that shows you, I don't know that this necessarily speaks to the competition. I I think it speaks to the love people have had for both of these films. So my guess is that's going to make it a pretty tight championship fight, right? Yeah. Parasite versus Mad Max Fury Road with the third place matchup being Get Out versus The Social Network. And in early voting, it's real close. With over 1,500, we're getting close to 2,000 votes in. Fury Road and Parasite are virtually tied, and that actually goes the same for Get Out and The Social Network. So after the final four being maybe a little bit of a disappointment in terms of how wide those margins of victory were, we're making up for it now in the finals because it's going to be close. I think it's going to come down right to the end. Again, that deadline is 11 a.m. Central Time, Monday, April 6th. If you haven't voted, please do. If you haven't left a comment, please do. We just might feature it next week on the show. That address, once again, is filmspotting.net slash madness. That means it's time, Josh, to take a look at the prediction leaderboard. Do you want to do this? I, I thought... I thought we weren't doing this anymore. I, we I could skip it. People just weren't that interested. And, you know, yeah, we should move on. Our listeners participated. 678 brackets submitted. Last week's leader, Eric Peterson in St. Louis. He's still holding on to that lead. He had Mad wow. Max. Yeah. Beating Parasite in the final. But if Parasite wins the prediction bracket trophy and that incredibly valuable, highly sought after film spotting prize pack that I haven't even decided what's going to go in it yet (laughs) goes to Michael Clausen, who's in Seattle. And Sam, our producer, reached out to him. We got a nice response from Michael in Seattle. So psyched to have made it this far in madness. I've been listening to and loving the show since 2015. I briefly met Josh once at the infamously expensive Film Spotting Seattle meetup of February 2018. Yeah, I think that bill was mostly uh, Michael's fault. I'm particularly glad, he says, to have attended that event since it's where I met my friend and now podcast co-host Taylor Baker. We chat and argue about film on Drink in the Movies. It's on iTunes, it's on Spotify, and we wouldn't be doing it if it weren't for Film Spotting. If Parasite can pull it off, a win would really help to allay the pain in watching my personal favorite feature film of the decade, Lee Chong Dong's Burning, get incinerated in round one. How about that, Josh? I love that we bring people together. We've made friends, not only just over the course of doing the show, people getting in touch with each other at these meetups that we've had, but they started their own podcast all because they met over you buying them drinks. We're spawning new podcasts. I love it. Everywhere we go. So- What about our little bracket challenge? You, me, producer Sam, Uh Madness Godfather Mike Merrigan. There is no trophy for us. There is just a booby prize for the loser. And last week, Mike was in first. I was in second. Sam was in third. You were in last place. And this week, not much has really shifted there. You had the master, a very safe bet, beating out the social network in the final. I had the master... As the runner-up going up against Mad Max Fury Road. And unfortunately, in not having those finalists, you drop from 256th place to 410th. Wow. I'm still in it? I mean, that just doesn't, that doesn't <laughs> bounce me completely out? No. Just out of our little shindig here. Mike, he had Get Out beating the social network in his final. He goes from 131st down to 303rd. 
I did have Fury Road in the final, but as I said, against the Master, so that hurt me. I did actually move up a little, though, 194th to 178th. And how about Sam? He picked the correct finalist, Fury Road versus Parasite. Well done, Sam. And that jumped him all the way up from 234th place to 89th. Holy cow. Yeah, and we had him written off in week one. In week I one. Mean, this is this is ridiculous. <laughs> Don't listen to anything I ever say as I start doing math or attempting <laughs> to do math and making prognostications because, yeah, the guy I said had no chance. I think two of his final four were eliminated in the second round or something, or that at least in right. the Sweet 16, right? But somehow, the two that he did pick for the final four are the two that are in the final. So you know what? It's ridiculous. It's never over until it's over. If you submitted a bracket, you probably know where to check to see how you're doing. You can also go to filmspotting.net slash madness and click on the view bracket link there at the top and then just click on predictions. I did think we should give 30 seconds or so, Josh, to talking about next year's madness because we have a lot of listeners who are eager to already start thinking about what we might do next March. More than that, they're really eager to start doing their homework. And because of listeners urging us in this direction, we did something really smart finally last year. Last year might've been the first time we did it. I can't recall if it was the year before, but rather than waiting until January or February or even March when we released the brackets to tell the world what films were gonna be in the tournament, we put it out way earlier, several months in advance, at least a short list of films we were considering so that people over their summers or Thanksgiving break or a Christmas break, if they had some free time, they could watch some of these films. Well, now, as we all are, or a lot of us are at home with more free time on our hands and people are catching up on a lot of films they've always meant to see, it really does behoove us to get our act together and get that short list out sooner rather than later, right? Well, yeah, and we're also, you know, crossing some legal T's and dotting some legal I's because no one is ever voting in a poll for a film they haven't seen, right? I mean, I know you would never do that, Adam. Never. So, so this allows people to to see everything and they can vote in every one of the polls. That's exactly right. We did actually pose this question to our family members over on Patreon, wanted to get their thoughts and give it some consideration. We've got a lot of good options, ones we've talked about, ones our listeners have thrown around not only this year, but in past years. And there are four that we were kind of landing on. We could continue with this whole decade theme, having now done a trilogy of the 90s, the 2000s, and the 2010s, and go with the 1980s, especially fitting because we are in the midst of our 8 from 84 series this year. There would be a lot of sense in doing that. But Maybe the whole decade thing is going to get a little bit stale. We should mix it up a little bit, throw something else in. And we were talking about films directed by women or comedies, thinking of it basically as film spotting listeners crowning the funniest movie of all time. And Josh, you had a good idea, too. There's something like 1500 Criterion Collection discs out there. We could do a bracket of just movies that have been given the Criterion treatment. Yeah, that would probably fill a good number of, of holes that I have to watch, too. So I like all of those, though. I think, uh, you know, I think people would probably have the most fun, my guess is, with either comedies or 1980s. Um, but those other two categories, the Criterion Collection or films directed by women, uh, great excuse, uh, really. And that's the way to look at it. Not not as we want to set these films up to uh, knock each other out in a tournament, but a great reason to in the next year really track a lot of them down that you haven't seen. So 
I think we can say that even though we haven't locked in on a final topic, we are, as a film spotting group, leaning towards comedies. And there's already some consternation and back and forth in our Slack about what constitutes a comedy. And I get it. I get where Sam is going with this. I get the desire to think of it in terms of pure comedies, whatever a pure comedy is, because I gave you guys the example. I was looking into the future, looking into my film spotting madness crystal ball, and I was imagining a scenario where I was having to vote between Rushmore, let's say, or the Royal Tenenbaums, a Wes Anderson comedy, and something like, I don't know, Airplane, something that does crack me up constantly and I think is a truly brilliant comedy. It has more laughs per minute for certain than Rushmore or the Royal Tenenbaums does. Do I think it's a better movie than Rushmore or the Royal Tenenbaums? No, I don't. So which one am I voting for? And now you understand why Sam wants to kick out movies like Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. And that's where I lean to um, because and, and Anderson, Wes Anderson is the perfect place to go for this, this mind exercise, because I consider all of his films comedies as well. But there's so much more than that. And that's not to demean the type of comedies that we are talking about, including in this potential madness. Um, but I do see the point in kind of drawing those lines. And I think honestly, I think there are going to be enough brilliantly funny, pure comedies to find 64 that we're happy with that we probably won't even have to get into this territory. Um, And, you know, it would, I here I, as a Wes Anderson, huge Wes Anderson fan, I would feel funny if we came out of this madness and something like the Royal Tenenbaums was anointed as the best comedy of all time. That just, you know, that just doesn't feel right to me. So you're, you're stamping our passport for this pure comedies approach, despite your love, your deep abiding affection for Wes Anderson. Yes, I will understand if his films are not in this particular madness. And we're going to split the difference a little bit. If that is the route we go and we go with comedies, it occurred to us that many of those films, and this is really what madness is all about, is picking titles that, yes, you may have some homework to do, but overall, these are mostly movies you've seen, mostly movies that the bulk of our audience loves or has strong feelings about and it really hurts when you're making some of these choices and we were looking at this incredible list of films that would probably go into a bracket of 64 or more of films directed by women and we just had to be honest except the fact that there were some severe blind spots on our part and if there's severe blind spots on our part i know there are listeners out there who've seen all these movies josh but they have to be in a real minority compared to most of our audience and so we thought Let's do a marathon. Let's provide a little bit of a system here for the homework as at some point down the road, we will almost surely get to a directed by women film spotting madness. So let's make our next marathon an overlooked auteurs marathon that focuses on six or seven movies by some of these preeminent female directors. And I can't wait for it because maybe my biggest blind spot of all time right now is Chantel Ackerman's John Dielman. And we would certainly watch it as part of this marathon. Yeah, that's up there for me as well. A couple of the other titles we're thinking of right now, Daisies, Meshes of the Afternoon, Wanda, Seven Beauties, and then Daughters of the Dust. Um, I think we're we're considering throwing in Yentl there as well, but otherwise we've got a good six titles for sure. And um, yeah, this is a great way to to cover some of that ground before we do get to a potential madness down the road. Yeah, Ackerman, Wurtmuller, Barbara Loden, and... 
Chertlova, the director of Daisy's Meshes of the Afternoon, I will clarify because I had to do a little bit more research on it. It's a short film, and Maya Darren was this early pioneer as a female filmmaker making short movies. And whether or not that fits into our scheme or not, maybe we end up watching four or five of those shorts for this marathon. They're actually all available on YouTube. So we have a lot of fun work ahead of us as we do expect to do overlooked tours for our next marathon. You can find more information about all of our marathons and that lineup over at filmspotting.net slash marathons. We do have some more madness going on over on our Patreon page, the Film Spotting Invitation Tournament. It's a 32 film bracket made up of films that were left out of madness proper. We're doing a matchup a day, putting the poll out there to our family members. And when people are hearing this show, Josh, the Elite Eight will just be getting underway, including one just absurdly brutal matchup that Sam and I should have seen coming. It looks like Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire is going to advance past short-term 12 and then have to face, in the next round, Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Yeah, I don't understand how you let that happen. Two of my favorite films, two of my top six films of 2019 are going to face each other in the Elite Eight. I shouldn't have to choose, but I'm going to have to. And it helps, I think, that, of course, Portrait of a Lady on Fire just arrived on Hulu last week. And so people are finally catching up with what we certainly feel is one of the best films of last year. So if you want to participate in all of that, get some additional benefits. There are many perks to being a film spotting family member on Patreon, including ad free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed and our monthly bonus episodes. It looks like Josh, we are going to have TV spotting this month in April, me, you and Sam, he's going to join us again as he did for Sin City. We're going to talk about Alex Garland series devs on Hulu. It's free to Hulu subscribers right now and on demand elsewhere. I'm excited about that. Yeah, just watched the first episode last night, and we're going to have to spend some time on the production design alone. For sure. Um, that, as you might expect from an Alex Garland um, a creation, right, that that's going to have an instrumental role. But yeah, man, does this thing look amazing. It really does. I'm actually caught up. I've watched all five episodes as of this taping, and I want more. I don't like the fact that I can't binge watch, even though this maybe isn't the ideal series to binge watch. I'm definitely hooked enough to want to just keep watching episodes. Yeah, it has it has a slower pace in a good way. I can tell already from that first episode that that you do want to space them out a little bit, I think. Well, and it's heavy. I mean, it's only going to get heavier for you if you've only seen one episode, but okay. it's it's definitely heavy, as you would expect from the guy who gave us. Ex Machina and Annihilation and also wrote one of my favorite films of all time, Never Let Me Go. So if you want to participate in that, you want to follow along with us and hear that conversation and get the rest of those perks, including participating in the Film Spotting Invitation Tournament, you can go to patreon.com slash film spotting. And occasionally here on the show, Josh, we're going to feature a comment from one of our new family members. This week we have David C. He's in Brunswick, West Victoria, Australia. Well, only after one donation 11 years ago, it is now time to pay the piper on a regular basis. I have now joined the Patreon for two reasons. One, to support a great film podcast, and two, to support a wonderful film forum. Keep up the wonderful work and stay healthy in these troubled times. Thank you so much for that, David, and of course, for becoming a family member on Patreon. Actually, David, taking the plunge, Josh, extra generous 
not only signed up for that $5 family tier, but kicked in another five. He's a $10 a month donor. So that is something you can do if, like David, you're feeling extra generous. Again, patreon.com slash filmspotting. And I love that David acknowledged our film forum. He's talking specifically about the film spotting forum, which you can get to by going to forum.filmspotting.net. As you may imagine, Josh, there's been a real uptick in activity over the past few weeks over at the forum. And David C is one of those guys who likes to check in regularly and partake in conversations with many film spotting listeners. In fact, Josh, some of them aren't even film spotting listeners anymore. They just like the forum so much and the people in the forum that they keep coming back. That's allowed, huh? I'm fine with that. You can't get away from us, press. We're both in your blood. This is the country you were born to. The country you know and trust. Your country, press. Amy wouldn't understand. She'd think there'd be snakes. Julie, please. Oh, it isn't tame and easy like the North. It's quick and dangerous, but you trust it. Remember how the fever mist smells in the bottoms, rank and rotten. But you trust that, too, because it's part of you. Just as I'm part of you. And we'll never let you go. Betty Davis and Henry Fonda in 1938's Jezebel, directed by William Wyler. It is the second film in our Betty Davis marathon. We started a couple weeks ago with Davis's breakout performance, 1935's Of Human Bondage. Davis's character in Bondage, Mildred, fair to say she comes off as hard to love in that one. Her character in Jezebel, Julie, also difficult. A little bit. Davis plays a Southern Belle, yeah, in 1850s Louisiana. She loses her fiancé, played by Fonda only to vow to win him back by any means necessary. Here's a little bit uh, from the text that appears in the trailer that might prepare you. The story of a woman who was loved when she should have been whipped. Wow. And that's not, uh, that's, that's not just a phrase. Uh, we're going to have to talk about how literal will. Uh, that gets in this movie. Uh, the film is based on a successful 1933 Broadway play by Owen Davis and Weiler's film version. Nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Davis won her second and also her final Best Actress Oscar for the role. There was another acting win from the film. Faye Bainter won Supporting Actress. She played Aunt Belle. Nathaniel Myers has been helping us to set up each of these reviews in this marathon. So let's go to the professor once more and hear what he has to say about Jezebel. Well, if this week's film wasn't the most macabre instance of coincidence spotting. In all honesty, though, it wasn't the depictions of victims of yellow fever being carted off that I found most difficult to watch in Jezebel, nor was it the film's unfortunate depiction of its African-American characters, though unfortunate it was. Rather for me, perhaps the greatest challenge of this film was enduring those moments when characters were at their most obstinate. Betty Davis's Julie Marsden is obviously the source of so many of these moments, with her general combativeness and defiant unwillingness to acknowledge her own wrongdoing. But really, there was no greater scene of discomfort for me than that of the Olympus Ball, not primarily because of Julie's obstinance, her wish to wear her red dress, but because of the more pointed, unremorseful, and almost punitive obstinance of Henry Fonda's prez, forcing her to finish the dance in front of a crowd that has literally distanced themselves from her. And yet, as emotionally difficult as it was to watch that scene, I nevertheless do think it's the film's masterstroke, where Jezebel, like Julie herself, is at its most confrontational, challenging our sympathies, while also demonstrating the importance of someone who pushes against rigid societal expectations and decorum. As frustrating as Julie can be, 
She's still a victim of a society whose conventions are stipulated by men and reinforced, perhaps unwittingly, by women. And that tension, as played out in the scene, lays that issue bare. It's a critique that's made doubly clear, I think, in the visual echo, one that I'm by far the first to recognize, of the men standing at a distance from a fever-stricken prez later in the film, as if to suggest that Julie is seen by her society as a disease, wherein the preservation of oneself takes precedence over the human compassion for those who suffer. At least, that's how I'm interpreting that scene, though admittedly, the film's various attitudes whether they be towards Julie, towards its male characters, towards the South, towards race and racism, I found them all really difficult to parse. The film is full of at least seeming contradictions, contradictions that, frankly, I'm excited for you both to help make sense of. So, to start you off then, I'm wondering, Josh, Adam, where do you think this film ultimately lands on Julie? And did you find Jezebel to be a similarly slippery film? Thanks, guys. So that particular question that Nathaniel poses, Adam, I think is is the one I was left with after Jezebel. There are a lot of good things to talk about in this film, and uh, hopefully we'll cover all of them. I want to spend time on that sequence Nathaniel also mentioned, the ballroom dance. But yeah, I was less interested in how I felt about Julie at the end of Jezebel because my feelings were pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is tied to how we, you know, what we made of her and of human bondage. Uh, but I wanted to nail down what the movie really um, was saying about this intensely complicated, in a lot of ways, unsavory or off-putting woman. And another way of asking the question is, is does the movie see how it ends um, with uh, with Julie making this sacrificial gesture in some way, or maybe it's another power move, you might ask? Let's talk about that. Um, does the movie see this as Julie's redemption, sending her away on that cart to the island of lepers? with her former fiance, or does it see that as her punishment? Does the movie think this is where she belongs after the behavior that we've seen? Did you have a clear answer to that? Because I don't think I do. Oh, man. I don't think there really is anything clear about this film or when it comes to thinking about this film, except how much I love thinking about it, how much I loved watching Davis in this performance as Miss Julie. And I'm right there with you. I maybe framed it a little bit differently, and we'll get to that. But in terms of Nathaniel's question about how slippery the movie is, absolutely. And that performance by Davis, before we really get into it, I just want to say, I suppose I was prepared for it because I know generally its reputation, including that she got a Best Actress win for it. And yet I was still shocked by it. I think it's an all-timer from Davis. Hmm. And... If you watched of human bondage like me and thought, okay, I'm seeing flashes of this commanding complex presence, but how good could she be in a significantly better film with a significantly better role? I think Jezebel certainly answers that question. And to borrow a word from our discussion last week, she has this malevolent magnetism. You are drawn to her and you are repulsed by her at the same time. And unfortunately in bondage, it's these stark extremes where she has kind of a raw, unrefined sexuality that Philip's obsessed with. And she's also wicked and irredeemable. There's no middle ground, right? And here she is so much more nuanced and complicated. And there's a scene I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about when she meets Press again, where there's a real strength she exhibits, but also genuine vulnerability and Mm -hmm. fragility. And that's something she didn't show any of earlier in this movie, Jezebel or at all in of human bondage. And 
It's important to note, of course, that here she's not a supporting player. Her name is the one you see first at the top in the biggest letters. She's not a character who's provoking a man's downfall and redemption. This is her movie. This is about her provoking her own downfall and potential redemption. And while I do think that the filmmakers' politics and their point of view is probably most reflected in press in the Henry Fonda character, and that Weiler and company are effectively reinforcing conventional patriarchal norms, as that tagline we read suggests, the camera here really only cares about her. Almost every stylistic choice that's made, and we can talk about some of our favorites, amplifies Julie's actions and emotions, and it gives her primacy over everyone else. So is one of those moments of vulnerability you're talking about when this is in the second half of the film, they've fled because of this yellow fever that has become the scourge of New Orleans. They've fled to a plantation, a family plantation, and Julie is regretting that press a year earlier essentially dumped her and gets news that he's coming back to the plantation to visit. She gets herself dressed up in the white dress that she Mm -hmm. thinks she should have worn before and press shows up with a new wife. And this, this is, you know, just one of the jerk moves that press makes. I think you're right. The movie is probably aligned with the male point of view, but this guy's also a real piece of work himself. Um, But he does show up uh, with his wife played by Margaret Lindsay and Julie, when she meets her, you are waiting for her to go off because you know what Julie is capable of, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not the first move Davis makes. The first move she makes is to be so disarmed by what her world has become, she doesn't know who to look at. She looks at Amy, and then she looks quickly back at press. She looks away from them both. And for me, there are other little touches of vulnerability, but that was a crucial scene in establishing that. She's going to go full Betty Davis pretty soon. I mean, we're going to get that, the malevolence you talked Mm -hmm. about. But in this moment, she's just deeply hurt. Yeah, it's there. You absolutely see that pain. It is genuine hurt. But I want to go back to Davis at her most brazen. I think about that incredible flourish of her entrance in this movie, right? It as well is an all-timer for me. There's this classic, classical Hollywood cinema technique that Weiler employs here that builds up our dramatic interest by having everyone discuss her for like seven to eight minutes. The first two scenes of the movie are people talking about her. And it's building up the suspense. And when she arrives, man, she does not disappoint. She pulls up to her own party, her own marriage party on a wild horse, right? Mm -hmm. Jumps down. And then I meant to ask my wife what the right terminology is here because I know nothing about dresses or costuming. But whatever the the flow of her gown is behind her, and it's not a big extravagant gown. She's riding after all. She's not properly dressed. Actually, she's not dressed well. But it still has a flow to it. And she pulls the flow of her dress up with her riding stick. And she does it so elegantly and swiftly as she opens the door and goes into the house or as the door is open for her, I should say, by a servant. It was such a great move that I think it's entirely possible that every Southern woman at this time who wore similar dresses as they rode were just aware of that little maneuver or that's a pure Davis invention. Hmm. I'm not sure. But I love it. That brings up another good question. What did, in 1938, 
what was the American, the general American perception of the South? Because I don't know if we've said, but this is set in 1852. And it's very much about the politics of that time and the the pastimes and the the costumes, the dress of that mm-hmm. time as well, to your point. That's not a question I can answer, but it did pop in my head, just kind no, of how certainly. that perception of the South might have played a role into how this film was conceived. But that that is a great entrance. Let me, the other wonderful entrance she gets is in that ballroom scene. This is after she's chosen to wear a dress that's been described as saucy and vulgar. It's mm-hmm. also red when everyone knows you wear a white gown to this particular ball. She insists on wearing it. Press reluctantly brings her. And when she walks into that ballroom, it's part performance and it's part also, as you're saying, Weiler camera work. She swings her shoulders back and forth kind of to it's like she's sending out reverberations that physically part the room, which at this point is what she wants. She wants to make that entrance, right? And and then Weiler's camera backs up, backs away so you can see the whole room. And as every other woman backs away from her and makes that mm-hmm. space, it's like the parting of this white sea that she then walks into. Uh, and it's just, it's a magnificent, grand confrontation, so beautifully framed. But mm-hmm. then you get the turn on that later in the dance, uh, which Nathaniel mentioned, where the cold shoulders get to be too much for her. And I don't know what she expected, if she expected them to be shocked, but then kind of come up to her admiringly. But no, Mm -hmm. people are going to ignore her and they're going to be the only two dancing on the dance floor. It's too much for her. And press insists that they're going to keep dancing. Mm -hmm. Essentially, he calls her bluff. And I think that's That's interesting because there are two instances in this movie where a man calls Julie's bluff. It's press doing it there. And then when he brings her home, He breaks up with her and it ends up really demeaning her and setting her whole life on a a different path. Later in the film, back on the plantation, we get this scene with Press's rival, Buck, played by George Brent, um, who she's always kind of been flirtatious with here. Here, she ends up goading him into a duel. And I still believe his acceptance of that duel is calling her bluff a second time. Mm -hmm. It's taking her games that she's been playing and saying, okay, you want to do this. Let's take it as far as it goes. And again, she suffers. Someone else suffers even greater than her, but she definitely suffers when that happens. So I, I want to come back real briefly just to this idea of how we perceive Julie, because for all of this, a lot of the stuff she's doing is admirable, right? When she drinks bourbon or doesn't wear the dress, it, you could say like, well, she's standing up for herself against patriarchal conventions. But why, Adam, did I find her more personally, I don't know if distasteful is too strong of a word, but but hard to like, less sympathetic than Mildred, who who Mildred, as you said, in Of Human Bondage, is clearly the more horrible person. She yes. betrays people. She abandons a child. Um, you know, the, the choices and actions Mildred takes have much worse repercussions. Mm-hmm. Julie, you could say, is in a way standing up for herself. But there was something bratty in those early scenes about the decisions she made that made me think it's it's more of a bid for attention than a principled stand. Well, that's it. And I guess maybe that's why I held her at a distance. Yeah, no, I absolutely get that. Going back to what you were saying about the ball, she is used to being able to impose her own will over any individual she wants, man or woman, and any room she wants. And that finally 
doesn't happen for her and she can't stand it. So there is that element of brattiness for sure. But I think I'm going to come the long way around back to this specific question of yours and of Nathaniel's in going back to some of those moments that really stand out for me in terms of the way Weiler shoots Miss Julie, the way he portrays her on screen. And if you ever want to know the difference between a mostly wasted Nice, but mostly just functional tracking shot. The beginning of this film, right, just kind of glides along a New Orleans street and Mm -hmm. lands on the hotel where the next scene is going to take place. It's fine. We've seen it a million times. It's a scene setter. But then we get a similar tracking shot when Davis walks into Press's bank and she's not supposed to be there. She dares to walk into this hallowed dominion of men. Mm -hmm. And Weiler shows us just how rebellious this act really is by showing her in a long shot, unbroken, striding across that floor, just completely owning herself and owning that space. You jump ahead and you already touched on it. The final shot of this movie, as bleak as it is for her and for everyone around her, the way she's being carted off with the flames behind her, she's depicted more like a general triumphantly exiting a battlefield than some poor victim. So I think you kind of hear where I'm going in terms of where I think the movie is at with Davis's character. But here's an example of the wonderful contradictions of the movie. And we touched on it when we were talking about Press's return. And it's a moment where she kneels before him. She subjugates herself before this man, something she's never done before, would never dream of doing. She is wearing that white dress finally that she was supposed to wear. And from the moment she walks into the room, the camera is only on her. The most we see of Henry Fonda is an over-the-shoulder shot. There's no shot reverse shot, no close-ups of him, no reaction at all. It's all about her, and it's Davis just doing amazing work. But at the same time, you could argue what Weiler is really doing is just setting her up for humiliation. Mm. We know what press knows in that moment and what she doesn't, which is that this is all for naught. He's married. She doesn't know that bit of information yet. So the longer Weiler shoots her down on the ground, talking soothingly and adoringly, the more foolish she looks and is going to look later when press drops the bomb and the more distraught she's going to be when he drops that bomb. So it does pose this question the way I framed it, Josh, was in terms of whether or not the movie wants to humiliate her or whether it wants her to recognize that she needs humility. There is a key difference, right? And as modern day viewers, I think we do immediately respond to her brazenness and to her disregard for customs, these outdated modes of thinking. And we certainly see the movie makes it very clear the imbalance of power between men and women in this place and this time. But you can simultaneously recognize that her progressiveness has nothing really to do with other women or society advancing. It's all about her own ego and her selfishness and what she wants and what she needs. So in effectively humiliating her, does she deserve to be punished in some way? I think the movie is challenging us or is it just about her and us as viewers recognizing that she just needs to transform. She needs to transform into someone who has humility, who exhibits selflessness, who is a compassionate person that we all should transform into, whether we're a man or a woman. And I think at the end of the film, with that final glorious shot of Davis writing off, I think it tells us where the movie's heart really is. 
So you think it is hoping that she is rising to that challenge um, yes. by making that it's choice to go to go with press. Yeah. Okay. Um, then we'll we'll come back to that because I want to end with asking you what you think happens after the movie ends. <laughs> we'll see if what your answer is to that and if it backs up that reading. Um, but going back to your point, yes, I I think you know Julie is very eager. She's happy with certain gender roles, traditional gender roles when they suit her. So yes, this is not any sort of protest that she's making. But I also want to say you know because. Because I find her performance, the performance and the character that way early, it doesn't mean I don't come around to being more sympathetic with her. I think definitely the point where press returns with the wife, you do begin to understand that even if she set herself first up for some of this, partly, this is cruel. And it's another boorish move press does to allow her to submit herself that long in that Hmm. scene he could have cut her off so much sooner and said you know well julie let let me tell you but he lets her (laughs) can you cut off miss julie he lets her go on and on so so yeah you're much harder on press than i am oh the guy, I mean, it, he's he's both boorish, but also like they're, they're, he's just so in between. You're right, but he doesn't come back to punish her. He comes back because he has to. That's clear that that's like a family thing and he has to arrive. And I think yeah. he does truly love his wife. And I guess I think that he isn't as spiteful as you make it sound. No, I mean, th- 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 I didn't buy his naivete about that, that a year later, he's just going to waltz in and Julie is not is not going to care. Um, but what that allows in the performance, at least, there are those nice touches uh, that you mentioned, her first entrance, there is um, her physical acting in the ballroom scene that I was talking about. But I think this really becomes another level of performance after she is humiliated. And then we get to see Julie that, you know, the eyes start glaring, the nostrils start flaring, and we get the Betty Davis that I think, you know, is is kind of who comes to mind when we think of a Betty Davis mm-hmm. performance, but it is controlled as well. It's appropriate to the character. It's appropriate to the story. And it's that great line where she hisses not long after she meets Amy. She goes immediately, immediately from willing to give herself over to press again, submit to him to saying, I've got to think, to plan, to fight. Mm -hmm. And it's that last word, the fight is where we're suddenly seeing um, kind of the Betty Davis that I think uh, we normally think of. But then it's still the choices she makes are incredibly jarring and obviously questionable. That duel that I mentioned comes <laughs> They're about more than as, questionable. As, as part of this plan to fight. And there's all, there's one thing, too, that I think is especially uh, malevolent, to use your word, and also can help us to get into another aspect of the movie I wanted to talk about, was it's, is its depiction of the enslaved characters in this story. Mm. But at one point, to get at Amy... Press's wife, who at dinner has expressed abolitionist sympathies. I think you could say she's coming from New York, from the North, and politics come up, and she's clearly aligned herself more towards abolition. Well, when Julie wants to make a power move, she calls all of the enslaved people on the plantation to come to the main house, and she has them sing with her. In front of Amy, specifically singing to Amy, and essentially what it seems to be doing to me is rubbing slavery in Amy's face. Undeniably. It's a terribly uncomfortable scene on a number of levels, Yeah, but it is not... And I and this is maybe why it's uncomfortable. It's not because the movie doesn't know what it's doing, right? It's definitely playing with those racial dynamics. But also, and this goes back to your point, Adam, about the movie constantly being slippery, as Nathaniel said, too, and not being quite sure where it stands. It is 
notable how much Weiler's camera does pay attention to even earlier in the film at the ball in the houses in New Orleans to the servants, but I'm assuming they must be enslaved as well, 1852 Louisiana, who are a part of this story. And I'm not going to claim that it gives any of these characters inner lives, but we do get to know them by name. We get to know Zeddy, who is Julie's essentially her personal maid, played by Teresa Harris. We get to know Uncle Cato, played by Lou Payton, who's the butler of the house, and a young boy, T-Bat, played by Stymie Beard, who runs errands for the family. So now they all do exist just in relation to the white character's concerns. Like I said, they don't get their own uh, inner lives or their own stories, but they do have significant roles. They do seem to be aware of what Miss Julie is always doing or up to in a way some of the other characters aren't. And Wilder's camera, interestingly, is attentive to their presence in the frame. When they're bringing in food or any other work that they're being called to do, there's something distinct in this film compared to other movies of the time where characters like that are in the background because they need to be functional. Mm-hmm. And the camera here seems to also be aware of the work that they're doing the social roles they're playing within this narrative. So again, that doesn't necessarily make up for some of the other more uncomfortable moments, including that song, but it's another one of this movie's mysteries as, mm-hmm. as to, you know, what what was the thinking behind including this in the film? Absolutely. And going back just for a second to Julie, this speaks to the difficulty of having this conversation we're having and trying to peg down this film and where we fall. You described how much you were put off by her brattiness early in the film as much as you responded to some of the ways she was challenging norms. And you felt more sympathy for her at Halcyon when press shows up. But of course, all of her most despicable acts are ahead of her. Yes. Right. I mean, they all come at Halcyon. So it is so slippery to go back to Nathaniel's word. But you're right about the depiction of the African-American characters here and it being really troubling on one level. And then you do have to recognize that Part of what's troubling about it is in so many movies from this time, you would just see them as peripheral characters and they wouldn't even be given the moments that they're given here. Right. Now, that doesn't overcome the fact that these are some of the most blatantly racist caricatures of black people I've seen on screen in a long time. There's a joke early in the film that is just reprehensible where a character is given some orders as they pull up to this ball in Miss mm. Julie's honor. And he just says, yes, um, to everything she says. And he's so used to saying it and agreeing categorically with everything they say that he just throws an extra one in, even though they aren't even speaking to him at that moment. He's just so Isn't used it, to saying yes. Um. But I actually found that kind of undercutting. And that was one of the first clues so the, where yeah, I thought maybe something more interesting is going on here because I think they knock at the door and he responds to the knock. And it's kind of like, okay. it doesn't matter what these white people say. I'm going to have to say the same thing anyway. So who cares? So that's, it's another interesting moment yeah. with contradictions within it. That's it. Because I think My visceral reaction to it immediately was, this is a joke at this character's expense. And I didn't like that at all. But then also getting to what you just said, you have to acknowledge that the movie is fundamentally about challenging the power structure and rules of the South. This all really transpires in that last third. And it is a movie set in 1852 in New Orleans. This is how these white people would treat these black people. So it gets into this question of depiction and whether or not that equals endorsement, I suppose. But I said the movie's heart is with Julie. I do think the movie's head is with press. And he does in some of those scenes near the end at Halcyon, he challenges the way things are in the South. And it gives him the only true moment of kinship 
with a servant, that Uncle Cato character where he offers yeah. him a drink, something I guarantee you no other white character in that man's life has ever done. And yet Press is still the guy at the dinner table who expresses directly that the progress that he sees coming is really just all about business. Right. It's all about making money. It's just that technology is going to make unskilled laborers the slaves. It's going to abolish them, but it's not about abolishing slavery. It's just the passing of time. And so the movie is, on one hand, giving him credit for being willing to adapt to the changing times, but it also wants to firmly establish him as a product of this culture. So on that topic, even, all we have is more questions. I hate to say this, but in a war of commerce, the North must win. That's a mighty curious thing for a Southerner to say. It strikes me that way, but maybe press has learned why, up North. If you must have it, it'll be a victory of machines over unskilled slave labor. Preston! I don't know that I like that, Dillard. You're not expected to like it. You like it a lot less when it happens. You talk mighty like a black abolitionist. I think you know I'm no abolitionist. I believe the tide has turned against us. But I'll swim against that tide just as far as you will, Cantrell. Sure, we're all of one mind here. We hate an abolitionist, we hate the devil. Naturally, we claim the right to the customs we were born to, even some of us who question the value of those customs. I like my convictions undiluted, same as I do my bourbon. So I want to place Amy, Press's wife, played by Margaret Lindsay, in what I see as a potential pattern for the rest of this marathon um, as another victim, another female victim of Betty Davis, because we had a couple of them in of human bondage, right? We we mentioned how um, some of the other women characters were, were lucky to get out of that situation with Philip when they did, because this wasn't, this just was not good at all and how Mildred was a part of that. I definitely see Amy in that uh, line. And it'll be curious to see if there are others in these movies, if Betty Davis kind of leaves bodies in her wake of of female supporting actors. Uh, And I'm also curious to see, will a movie ever be on Betty Davis's side? You know, will, will we get one? And do we want one? Maybe this is part of what's her appeal is that she's so complicated. But will we get a movie where we can say, yeah, this, you know, this film um, was championing her and her character all the way through? I don't know. Like I said, maybe we don't want it. But yeah. I, but I also I want to ask you that question, Adam. What's your ending? So so we're going to we're going to spoil this. So we we're leaving with that shot you talked about. Julie riding triumphantly on the carriage with the other sick holding press. They're going off to the island. Her promise now. The reason this is happening is she told Amy, I will go with him to this island because I know the Southern customs and the manners and the ways to negotiate what we're going to be up against. I, I will nurse him to health and then bring him back to you as my penance for how I treated him. You know, the, there's a basic question of, do you think they're both even going to make it? And the other question is, if they do, what happens then? <laughs> well, my immediate reaction in the moment was that they're both dead. And that's Mm. just because you have to accept what other people say in the film about being cast off to this leper island and knowing what we know about infectious diseases that people at that time clearly did not know. We have to recognize that the chances are slim that either of them, especially press, are going to survive. And yet, if I really had to put money on it, I would say that at least one of them is going to come out alive. And that's because of the line you referenced earlier and what she does say to Amy, which is she knows how to fight. Mm -hmm. Miss Julie knows how to fight. If anyone could somehow walk away from that island unscathed, it's her. Yep. I think that's right. Um, And 
I would also say that either way, Amy has never seen press again because there's another reading of this <laughs> where I mentioned the plan. I've got to think. I've got a plan. Oh, you man. Know? You're this so is, cynical. Hey, I She's watched transformed, this. transformed, Josh. I don't know if She's I buy reformed. the transformation. I, I get the, the inclination because the other phrase she says to Amy when she's begging her to let her go, help me make myself clean. So there's the redemption possibility, yes. right? Um, <laughs> and it's and she sells it. But I also got to think like, man, if, if press comes out of that thing, she's not letting him see Amy again. Maybe not. Man, I didn't realize you were so jaded. Josh, here I am just willing to think of her as this now perfect lamb who is going to be such an upstanding member of society moving forward if she makes it back from that island. I do want to touch on one other Weiler sequence that I really loved. And I also think it's instructive because it's a scene, of course, that provides some context for this behavior that we're talking about. And it's overall a pretty subtle moment, but it's after they have quarreled a little bit early in the film, Press and Julie. And He's been admonished by a guy at the bank that, you know, his father, Press's father, would never have tolerated such behavior from his woman. And basically, mm-hmm. he would have he would have punished her, you know, like you might a child. He would have broken out a stick and then, of course, told her everything will be OK and helped her heal. And that was the way it should have been at the time. So I already mentioned that I love what she does with her writing stick when she comes in to the party. And then when he goes up to talk to her as he's walking out of the room, Press decides to bring the stick with him upstairs just in yeah. case he might need to use it. Or maybe, of course, he just wants to have it there as a prop to intimidate her a little bit. It might even be the same exact stick that he's now going to use against her, but he's going to maybe treat her like a cult that needs to be broken. This is apparently how you could view women at the time. And when she finally opens the door and he's got the stick, he cuts to a shot where we're seeing Davis and we're only seeing basically the, the lower half of Henry Fonda, but the stick is in the foreground when she opens that door. And Weiler's camera takes note of her taking note of that cane. And then later as they talk, He sets it against the door. He's acquiescing a little bit. The camera, Davis's eyes, take note of the cane being put against the door. And then when she gets him to kiss her and they embrace, we actually cut to an insert shot, a POV shot of hers of that stick propped up against the door. And that whole scene culminates with her casually pointing out that he forgot to take his stick with him. But that that stick is a representation of of masculine power or in this case, more emasculation, but it's the threat of force that a woman like Julie always had to be aware of yes. at this time, right? And Weiler just shows it all with some cuts and some glances. Yeah, and that's where you do have sympathy for that character, even early on, where you realize this is a re- this is a reality she has to negotiate, mm-hmm. however she can, because as abhorrent as we find, you know, that claim, and I think we're meant to by the movie that the, this colleague's insistence that he beat her in response, you know, I think the movie wants him, and he eventually does, to choose not to. I don't know if we need to see it as a noble act or he needs to be praised for coming to that realization. Um, but he does hold back from actually engaging in physical abuse. But yeah, she has to negotiate that and she uses her own props, right? She positions a dress in her room in an exact way for him mm-hmm. to see it. She plays with the ribbon on the dress that she's wearing to distract him when he comes in from 
you know, the stick that he is holding. So yeah, that's a, a very tense scene because you don't really know which way it's going to go. And I think it's an early example of some, you know, where some sympathies do build for her. Yeah, as far as Weiler goes, you know, when we do a marathon, we haven't done a lot of them, Adam, with uh, focusing on an actor and actress. But yeah, sometimes we get to see a couple of films from one director. But uh, if we don't, I don't know offhand if we're revisiting Weiler, but two other films definitely I would recommend. Most people have probably seen Roman Holiday of his, but really one that um, I think is even even better than Jezebel's The Best Years of Our Lives, um, set uh, with soldiers returning home from World War II. It's just an astonishing historical document, I think, of that time, as well as a very engrossing drama. So yeah, Weiler definitely, definitely working with a real filmmaker, getting to watch a real mm-hmm. filmmaker at work here, I should say, with Jezebel. We're going to continue our uplifting Betty Davis marathon with Betty suffering not from TB or yellow fever, but a brain tumor. That's what we get next, Josh. Oh, no. What? <laughs> I wish I hadn't known that. No, I, I'm glad I know going in this time. So, so I'm not just like floored. All right. That's 1939's Dark Victory. Not only Davis, but Humphrey Bogart in that one as well. It's available on demand on most platforms. If you want to see the whole lineup for our marathon, you can go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. Adam, that is the end of the show. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, find us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. If you want to listen to some older episodes, well, go to filmspotting.net and check out the archives. We've got reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. And at filmspotting.net, you can vote in Filmspotting Madness 2020, best of the 2010s, it's the championship round. We are going to crown a champion with your help, so be sure to vote. You can also order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch at filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. We mentioned the third film in our Betty Davis Marathon coming next week, Dark Victory, and we will discuss Eliza Hittman's new film, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. It's available on demand right now. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week, it comes from Chicago's Ernie Hendrickson from his album Roll On. More information at erniehendrickson.com. A little personal plug for Ernie here, Adam. He also happens to be uh, B, my daughter's drum instructor. Nice. So that's how that's how I got to know him. But I can verify excellent musician as well because not too long ago when we were still allowed to go outside, I saw him at the hideout here in Chicago and he killed it. So that's Ernie Hendrickson. Check him out at erniehendrickson.com. Are you going to get a discount, Josh, now? I'll have to look into that. <laughs> for Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.